1: Thanks for listening to the latest Football Digest podcast available on all podcast platforms. Subscribe now through Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Acast or wherever you get your podcasts from so you don't miss a single episode. Good morning and welcome along to Football Digest Extra Time with myself, Ned Keating. I am joined today by my lovely colleague, Connor Bromley, as we run the rule over another busy weekend of Premier League action. And Conor, there's really only one place to start, isn't it? A instant Premier League classic, Chelsea 4, Manchester City 4, all action, loads of goals, exactly what you want on a Sunday evening, just as you're settling down to watch it. 4-4, four, four point each. Was it a fair result in the end? Probably. I think the way the
0: game went, it felt like a draw was almost the inevitable conclusion. You know, it was, it was so up and down. There was momentum swings either way. I actually think Chelsea probably edged it in terms of chances. I to feel like the or the the tilt of the pitch, I know that's the one that, that they kind of use. I think Chelsea probably did edge it in that sense, but you see the quality that Manchester City have. And you know, even then, Sanchez had some big saves to make. I remember one in particular he made on Haaland where he'd fired it in the bottom corner and you know he, he did a really good save there. So I think both sides will probably be happy with the draw. I think particularly for Chelsea, Pochettino... I think this is a statement result for them in a lot of ways. You know, they got the draw against Arsenal a couple of weeks ago and that one kind of felt like points dropped because of the manner of it. You know, they were 2-0 up. They threw it away sort of in the last 20 minutes. Whereas this one, they fought really hard. Every time City went, you know, ahead in the game or brought a back level that they, they didn't buckle, just, they just continued to play their way and continued to attack free flow in it and were able to, you know, pick up a really good point. So I think this is a great... Sort of showcase for where Chelsea are right now. And considering where they were at the end of last season, you know, I think people kind of forget that they finished in the bottom half of the Premier League. And there was a point where we were thinking, oh, God, they need to stop picking up points so they're not dragged into a relegation battle. I mean, come sort of March last season, it was horrendous at Chelsea to see them where they are now. Look, we know that they're probably not going to get in the Champions League this season, but to see that progression from Lower end Premier League team to actually a fully functioning team. You can see what they're trying to do. It's clear they've got like an identity and a philosophy. And I think it's impressive that Pochettino's been able to do that inside sort of 15 Premier League games. I think Chelsea could be really happy. And and yesterday was sort of the epitome of that.
1: And I think it's it's a great result for them. You say that, but the issue that I've got here is that you look through their results so far this season. And yes, it was going to take Pochettino time, but they've got draws against Arsenal. Liverpool, Manchester City. They beat Tottenham last week. But you look at their results against teams outside of that so-called, you know, big six bubble, uh, as, as we like to kind of refer to it, and it's been pretty poor. You know, 15 points from the, from it in Tottenham, the Premier League. Of that, six of those have come from those four games. The other eight, they've not really... Been at it really, and the performances haven't been bad. So I understand your point in the last two games. Yes, they've shown a bit of fight and passion, but for me, this Chelsea side—I still think they only turn up in these big games. I still think there's a big question mark over them when it comes to to perhaps sides that they should be beating. And I know it's still going to take time for Pochettino to to work through it and get his ideas across. But for me, I, I just still think that they're only turning up in the big games, and there there they might still be a mentality issue there. I could be wrong, and they'll come out and smash it and win six in a row against. Um, you know everyone, all the sunshine in the Premier League, now. but I, I just don't think that there's a. there's a The players seem to get themselves up for these bigger games, perhaps a little bit more than the matches against teams that that they should be expected to beat. Even if team is still trying to work and get his ideas, like the qualities there, they should be beating Those sides, I think that's probably a fair point. To be fair, then
0: you you watch Chelsea, at, particularly at home. You know, I think they've lost against Brentford, and Nottingham Forest. They're the two that sort of stick out of my head. But I think the key thing in them games is, is actually the, the clinical nature of the play. And I've, I've watched them this season so many times and thought they're a really good team until they get the, to the box and then they really struggle to score. And that's why I think maybe it isn't a mentality thing. Maybe it's more just that clinical edge that they don't have. Nicholas Jackson, he seems to have caught fire a little bit now, but he's been so wasteful in front of goal. And I don't necessarily blame him. He's had nobody really to help him either. And I think if they had in Kungu fit for this season, it might have been a little bit different so far. But I think it's that clinical edge they've lacked. I don't think there's been, you know, even that Brentford game they played the other week, they played really well in that game, apart from the fact they couldn't score. I don't think Pochettino could have done much different, really, beyond maybe an extra finishing session for them to have got a, a different result in that game. And that's why I think there is progress there. Last season, the Graham Potter, I felt like a lot of apathy at Chelsea, a lot of, you know, particularly as well when Lampard came in, as they just didn't look like a functional football team. You had no idea what they were trying to do. They were just all over the place like individual footballers who'd never played with each other before. And at least now when you watch them, it looks like there's an understanding there. He's getting a tune as well out of players that struggled last season. I particularly look at Raheem Sterling. He had a stinking season last year. And this year he looks like, you know, the player that we kind of saw I don't know if he's necessarily the Man City player. So you are getting close out of that level. He's far nearer that than what he was last season. So I think Chelsea, there's progress, obvious progress there, in my opinion, even though they're going to get dodgy results. And the reason why they're going to get dodgy results is they're not the finished article right now. It's probably going to take Pochettino a couple of seasons, really, to get this team fighting again for top honors. Um, in the Premier League and, and fighting again on in Europe in cup competitions but I think Chelsea kind of knew that this was a, a giant reset you see a lot in American sports the rebuild you know where a team just kind of tears it down and, and goes for it again and even though Chelsea have spent a, an absolute ton of money it does feel like they were in a rebuild phase and Pochettino for me is, is the right guy there and, and I've seen really good signs that they are on the comeback and I think sort of, if we're heading into, not next season, but the season after, I think we'll be talking about them as
1: potential title contenders, I really do. Just like Pep Guardiola as well, suggesting that Chelsea will be fighting again for titles uh, before too long. One person that Pep Guardiola might not have been too happy to see yesterday, though, is, of course, Cole Palmer. The Manchester City uh, youngster left the club in the summer, left Manchester City in the summer to go and join Chelsea. and, And he's really hit the ground running there. Obviously, he scored the late penalty Yesterday, to earn Chelsea a point against Manchester City, against his boyhood club. Again, notwithstanding the fact that he was a boyhood Manchester City fan, he still chose to lead. So, all credit to him there. This morning, there's well, the news that Cole Palmer is into the England squad for the first time, as well. We'll talk a little bit more about England later on. But, kind of, you have to say it's it's well deserved. You know, you know, even before that news this morning, we had him listed on running order as hitting the ground running at Chelsea. And he really has. He's, he's really shone so far at Chelsea, one of their best players so far this season. That England call is probably justly deserved, richly deserved for his form. And it looks like Chelsea may have got themselves a, a bit of a bargain perhaps here. What was it? 40 million, I think was the initial fee for him and, and maybe one or two scotch it at the time. But he's really starting to show and realise the potential that we saw on occasions at Manchester City, not too much often, you know, fleeting appearances from the bench, but being given the chance of the offer at Chelsea, he's really grabbing it and, and taking it. I think it's one of them transfers that you look at and I think it actually
0: benefited all parties. You know, I think Cole Palmer gets the chance to still continue playing for a top club, but also play every game and really showcase himself, which he wouldn't have been able to do at Man City. I think for Man City, even though I think Cole Palmer is a brilliant player, do I see him playing every week in a Manchester City team? I probably don't. I don't think that he's as good as the other attacking players that they've got. So, for them to get, you know, 40 plus million for a player they probably weren't going to use that came through the academy has effectively just cost them the development and time. It hasn't cost them anything else. I think it was a good bit of business for them. And I also think from, you know, the Man City side of things, it's good for them to show their young players that, you know, they're not just going to hold them in the way that Chelsea have historically. I you know, think about Ruben Loftus-Cheek, for example, um, Hudson-Odoi. Chelsea kept these players in, but actually didn't really have any intentions of, ever using them as much as they should. Whereas Man City, I think have shown that they're willing to go, we know you're a brilliant player, Cole, but we're probably not going to be able to give you 40 starts in a season. So you need to find somewhere else to play. And I think it's probably good for Man City that they, they, they sold him for that reason because young players when the sign for Man City at least will think, right, if I don't break it through here, they're not just going to hold like hold me in and hold me. They're going to actually let us go out, which Chelsea were guilty of for years. Uh, with their academy player. So I think it was a it's a good transfer all around it. And look, I thought yesterday Cole Palmer stood out. I thought he was really he's exciting to watch. I love the way he plays. Um I think he's just a very, very good player. And I think he's probably going to be for the next sort of 10 years Chelsea's main man, certainly off his recent displays this season. So I think really, really good move from Chelsea. And I think Cole Palmer settled in really well. And that's always the worry. Big transfer fee hanging over a player, but he's dealt with that and he looks you know, he looks like he's, he's getting better and better with every game. So, yeah, I think it was a, a good transfer. One of them wins for every team in the transfer model. Though if Colpa wins the Ballon d'Or in a few years, I think Man City will probably regret it. Just
1: finally, on on the game on, on Sunday, uh, looking at the Premier League table now this morning, we are going to come on to, to a few of the other teams just in a, in, a, in a little moment after this question. But Manchester City, will they ruin not hanging on having school so late to go ahead, will they really not, not hanging on and obviously not conceding, uh, they would have hoped not to have conceded the late penalty to give Chelsea the chance to equalise? Because you look at the Premier League table on you know, Monday morning and there's now only three points that separate the top five as well. And there's an interesting team in there that I want to come on to a little bit later on on the podcast. But it looks like it could be a tight title race. I know, you know, me and you speaking outside of this podcast, we, we've been saying quite a lot. We expect probably City to, to walk it, I think this year, actually maybe not you know you look at the teams that are around them Liverpool and Arsenal you know after only 12 games to be only one point behind you know will City rue the fact that they didn't see this could this prove decisive maybe come the end of the season that you know the two points dropped here that they that they otherwise would have had and had a win and gone into the international break three points in the league to be only one now is that something that they're going to be quite upset with I don't think so because you actually watch that game and I think Man City
0: overall would probably be happy I don't to, to draw when you're winning in added time and to concede a stupid penalty. Yes, they'll, they'll feel like it's points dropped, but overall, the balance of the player, I don't think that they did enough to you know really deserve the three points. So I don't think this will be a one to look at. And Even though Chelsea aren't a team that there were, Arsenal's dropped points there this season, Liverpool have dropped points there this season. So it's not like they've lost ground there. We're saying that they're the three teams going for the title. So I, I don't think City will rue it. I think they're more likely to rue the points that dropped at Wolves a few weeks ago, you know, that that will have hurt them because um, that's a game that normally is their bread and butter in terms of of winning it. Um, but yeah, I don't think that's, it's the end of the world for Man City. I do think as well with Man City that they are a stronger second half of the season team, especially with Kevin De Bruyne probably coming in. You'd imagine he'll be probably fitting fire in post-January. That's when they pick it up. I mean, last season, do you remember, we were watching Arsenal win every week. And then it got the crunch time and they just seemed to draw every week in March and April, which cost them the title, and Man City just win. We've seen this when Man City were going against Liverpool all them years ago. The two of them just won every week and Man City ended up winning the league because they just didn't drop any points. So I think City, they're still the, the favourites by a lot. I'd be shocked if we're sat here in May and we're not talking about Man City winning the Premier League title because they're just that good and that they're, they're so clinical in the way that the player I just I'd be surprised if Liverpool or Arsenal I think are logically the two other contenders I'd be surprised if they'll be able to keep up with them particularly when we get to the business end of the season and we've seen that Arsenal aren't great at the business end of a season we saw them throw away the top four against Spurs last season we saw them throw away the, the Premier League title and I, I think Arsenal need to prove that they're able to play a full 38 games and not just 31 as they have the last couple of years
1: As you said there, Liverpool are now second in the table, just a point behind Manchester City. Was the comfortable nature of the victory as well against Brentford, was that exactly what they needed? Um, You know, not only the fact that they lost uh, to Toulouse in the Europa League, lost that 100% record in the group stages um on Thursday night and, and chaotic seeds in the end for anyone who didn't see it, a goal was given and then it was ruled out for a, handball, uh, about five or six passes, I think before maybe a couple of more it was. But was that win not only needed just to kind of get that loss out of their system? I know was much changeable side in that defeat and to lose, but also for the fact that the first game that we get to when we come back from this international break is of course the top two in the table going at it hammer and on a Saturday afternoon at twelve thirty. Do Liverpool and did Liverpool need this win just to go into that game? to be that close to Manchester City, had a bit more spice, had a bit more tension for the game, not just, you know, for the players, but for the individuals like me and you as well. I think so. I think with Liverpool, they're so good at Anfield, aren't they? You know,
0: generally when Liverpool play at home, you always expect them to win. They don't seem to drop many silly points at home as well. So I wasn't surprised to see them win yesterday as comfortably as they did. I will say that they were probably a little bit false because Brentford had some chances early in the game. There was a possible red card in there as well. So I think they were maybe a little bit fortunate actually to have come through that as comfortable as what they did. I do think as well, we talk about that that Man City-Liverpool game coming up after the international break. It's a, it's really, for me, it's a crime scheduling-wise that that's the first game after an international break, half 12, because we know that both of them teams have got 25, basically every player they've got in international. They're going to be coming in. How many days prep are they going to have before that game? And it's such a big game and an exciting game for the neutral. Where if they'd had, if it had been slotted in maybe on the, the weekend after, and they'd had time to prepare it and whatnot, I think it would have got a better spectacle. I do worry that this game, because it's coming after International Break, because it's the half 12 game, it, it's going to be a little bit flat, maybe a bit more cagey. Um, hopefully, I, I'm jinxing it there and we'll see a classic game. But I often feel like these early kickoffs on a, on the weekend in the Premier League, that generally not amazing games, that generally cagey affairs. And I think particularly coming off this international break, I, I don't see us seeing both teams at full throttle. And I think that that could, you know, it could be one of them where it actually benefits Liverpool, to be fair, because if they can catch Man City when they're not 100% at it, maybe they can, you know, bring a surprise and actually pick up a, a good win if they're fully prepared for it. But I think Liverpool will be in the same boat because they've got so many international players. So it's a little bit of a, a shame really that this is the
1: game we're coming back into because I just don't think it'll be as entertaining as it could be. Just to add to it as well, Jürgen Klopp was saying in his post-match press conference yesterday that those who had scheduled it don't feel football. Um, And of course, both teams have plenty of South American players in it. But the, the added caveat to this is that at half 12 on Wednesday morning, well, the early hours of Wednesday morning, uh, Brazil play Argentina, so that's Edison and Alvarez from Manchester City, and that's Allison and McAllister for Liverpool. Not you know adding in, there's plenty of other you know South American players for Liverpool, obviously Darwin Nunes as well, and Luis Diaz, um, you know, Colombian action uh, for, for him as well. But just for those four players and four players who you probably would all say would start on that twelve thirty on Saturday. You know, probably won't be back in the UK until maybe some point Thursday late, Wednesday night, some point Thursday, depending on when their flight back is. Again, it's just going to add to it. You kind of wonder whether or not we're going to get Stefan Ortega in goal from Man City and uh, Kovine Kelleher in goal from Liverpool. Um, another team, though, that is hot on the hills of Manchester City is, of course, Arsenal. And this week, something strange, Connor. Uh, VAR drama for the Gunners again, but this time Mikel Arteta agreeing with it. What's happened there? Um, but, of course, you did see the interim Fabio Vieira and the red car, didn't he? I'm not sure you could have disagreed with it. Again, for Arsenal, much like Liverpool getting back on the horse after the defeat to lose, for Arsenal, the important thing was just winning, wasn't it, against Burnley. Getting that win, knocking the the disappointment, the anger that they felt from that Newcastle game out of their system and and kind of getting back on the horse in the Premier League, and they did exactly that. Yeah, and this is a game I think we have seen
0: Arsenal sometimes drop a bit of a stinker. You know, I I think about last season, I think Southampton at home, they dropped points, didn't they? And I think... um, blown with at home as well last season I think the drop points scored two late goals so when Burnley made it 1-1 my concern was oh it's going to be another one of them days for Arsenal they're going to drop super points at home and this will be what cost them come the end of the season so for them to score pretty much straight away after Burnley scored was really important and yeah it was a, it was a good win for Arsenal kind of the the standard victories you like to see—it's similar to the, the Liverpool one against Brentford. Just you come out of it, you you end up winning by a few goals, and, and it's comfortable in the end. I think the Arsenal fans would have left pretty happy. But I think for Arsenal, it's it's not the game last weekend. Is it still? You, know, you look at how poor Newcastle were on Saturday evening against Bournemouth. I know it's a weak guard and Newcastle had played in Europe in the midweek, but I think they're going to rue going to St James's and, and not performing to the best of their ability because. As much as Newcastle were good last week, Arsenal, I don't think, covered themselves in glory. And they're the games that are going to cost Arsenal the title. These home ones where you're playing against, you know, the, the what I'd probably call the cannon fodder in the league, the teams you expect them to beat. These aren't going to be season-defined. And it's the ones, like going to St. James's Park, a game they actually won last season as well. They're the ones that are going to cost them come the end of the year. And I was, I was really disappointed with Arsenal last weekend. I know I'm sort of going a week back for this podcast, but I think it, it's worth noting just, because of how detrimental that result could be for their season. And
1: I think that that shows probably why they won't win the title come the end there. Talking of the title race, and then we've spoken a couple of times about whether or not Tottenham should be counted in it, but I think the defeat at, at Wolves and the injuries that they suffered, it'll be testing for them. And this is me obviously speaking as a Spurs fan. I think it'll be a testing run for us between now and Christmas. And if we're still on the coattails, the top four, I'd, I'd still be quite happy at that point. But as I said, earlier in the podcast, there's an interesting team that's part of that top five that is only three points back from current leaders, Manchester City. Can we possibly put Aston Villa in the title question? If they obviously continue their form, there's there's no doubt that that we can see it there. But we shouldn't underestimate the job that Unai Emery is doing, the plaudits that he's getting. You know, there was one or two that I think when he returned to English football said, oh, look at the job that he did at Arsenal. It's terrible. Actually, that's an anomaly. And, and you know, the, the jobs at Paris Saint Germain and Arsenal are, are two blips on an otherwise highly successful managerial CV that, that he's got there. And, and he's shunning exactly what he's capable of at Aston Villa again, isn't he? To be fifth in the table, three points off top after 12 games, a phenomenal achievement and, and phenomenal what he's doing at Aston Villa. Can we include them in the title talk? I'm going to guess that your answer is probably no at this point. I would probably
0: say you can keep them in the conversation, provided they're within a few points of it. I, I would love to see how they do against sort of Man City at home, you know, at Villa Park and see whether or not they can, you know, pick up a, a big win in them sort of games. I think that that's important. I, I remember the first game of the season, they went to Newcastle. And they got almost 5-1 in the end, wasn't it? But I actually thought they played well that day, as stupid as it sounds. I thought 5-1, it was the cruelest 5-1 defeat I think I'd ever seen. But I was a little bit worried that maybe the form at the end of last season for Villa was maybe just uh, uh, an anomaly. But they've shown to me when I watch them. I, I think they're, they're fantastic to watch compared to the Emery teams at Arsenal, who were so dire and, and defensive and and I would almost say boring. This team's fantastic to watch. So exciting, blistering going forward. I love what they've done in terms of their attacking options with Ollie Watkins sort of at the... The spearhead of that they're so quick going forward so skillful um i really really like them and i don't think you know i don't think we'll be sat here at the end of the season with them being in the title conversation but i certainly think they could be this season's newcastle you know i think that they could definitely break into that top well five probably this season because we're probably going to get the extra champions league place but i think bill i could hundred percent finish in the champions league places come the end of the season and i think it'll probably be deserved it's also good though for Aston Villa, I mean, I remember them years under Martin O'Neill where they're just every year they were there and then they fell out towards the end of the season. I think it'd be great for their fans if they did finally, after years of sort of teetering near it, sort of 10 years ago to, to get in. I think it would be amazing for them. And I don't see a reason why they won't get it. You and I, as you say, he's got a proven track record at this kind of club. I don't think his record right when he goes to the the big jobs. is It's great. But when he's at them clubs, which are, you know, the... The ones just below that, you know, your Everton's, your Newcastle's, your um, obviously Aston Villa, Sevilla, similar Valencia, all them sorts of clubs that are not quite the elite ones in their country, but good. I think he does a really good job of getting them punching above their weight. And I hope Villa really go for it in the Europa Conference League as well. I think it'd be good for them to win a, a European trophy. But there's a lot to be excited about at Aston Villa at the minute, compared to where they were a year ago when Stephen Gerald was in and we were talking about them as potential relegation candidates. That change is been.
1: Amazing, really. Yes, of course. We have to remind ourselves that it might be the race for the top five that we're talking about where the uh, Champions League is expanded next year. And, and as Connor said, they the a potential for uh, the top two uh, nations with the, the best coefficients to, to get an extra spot. Um, and, and England are currently top of the uh, coefficient rankings with a 17-point lead uh, over Spain. So, and a 37-point and lead over Germany in third place as well. So, As as Connor says there, it's looking quite confident. So when we get to March, April time, we start talking about the top five instead of the top four. We have to remind ourselves of that potentially. Um, But just finally, and again, the fact that it could be the top five next year um, uh, in in the Champions League next season. Manchester United, again, only seven points back from top spot. Were we, you know, another win at the weekend against Luton, were we perhaps a little bit too quick to write them off this year in the Premier League, you know, we, we all say that they've had a terrible start. Sort of games got to be only seven points back. It seems like a, a kind of minor miracle for Manchester United to be that close to top spot despite what we know has happened for them so far in the Premier League. Were we, Were we a little bit too quick to write them off or is it just that the, the teams below them haven't been as consistent and that's allowed Manchester United to perhaps capitalise, especially when they've had a possibly slightly friendlier run of results between the last two international breaks.
0: But I did say that they're actually top of the form table, aren't they? They've got four wins out of the last five games, which is funny. Uh, but no, I don't think it is overblown because anybody who knows anything about football, who's watched football this season and watched Manchester United, will know that they are not a very good football team. A lot of the results to me just seem a wee bit fortunate. I don't think they've played well, even at the weekend. 1-0 at home against Luton, you know, that that's a game that... I don't think Man City win that game 1-0, do they? You know, I think Man City probably put three or four past them. And they very nearly dropped points there. Carlton Morris had a good header that was saved. I, I have not been impressed with Manchester United all season. And I think that they are overperforming in terms of points for their performances so far. I genuinely think that they are very doing very well to have as many points as they've got this season. I think the other thing that's key is is they don't draw games so that they just win or lose, which to me, feels a little bit un, sort of unsustainable. I would suspect that probably they should have drawn more games this season in the sense of maybe some of that win should have been draws and maybe some of the defeats should have been draws. Um, I I just don't see them getting into that top five come the end of the season. I really think they were a poor team. Morgan Marcus Rashford, not scoring goals. We've talked about Anthony a million times in this podcast. Probably would struggle to get in the Sheffield United team. I think he's that poor. Um, you look at the defense, Lindelof still knocking about, scored at the weekend, but you know, what's he doing still knocking about is Man United centre back, Johnny Evans playing at centre back, he's fallen out with Varane seemingly, so really can't get him in the team. Um Hoyland still hasn't scored a Premier League goal yet. I think he's probably a decent player, but they're putting all their eggs in the basket of a, a kid, essentially, you know, and I, I'm, I just, all over the pitch. I, I just don't see what they're doing. Even their midfield, Mason Mount just hasn't done anything since he's went in there Christian Eriksen slow Casemiro slow Scott McTominay decent player but generally doesn't get played in the right position and I don't think it's trusted and I just look Diego Dallot another one still knocking about Man United even though we know he's not good enough I, I just don't see how this team can have a successful year a successful season playing the way that they are playing the style of football that they are and with the players they've got Um, So no, I don't think we were quick to say that it was a crisis. I think it is a crisis that has had some cracks papered over with very, very thin paper.
1: Well, Conor, there pulls the splinters out of his backside after sitting on the fence for uh, through that Manchester United diatribe. Uh, we are going to finish this morning with a quick little look ahead to England's international fixtures They're up against Malta on Friday, and then away to North Macedonia on Monday. Uh, as we mentioned earlier on in the show, there's been one or two uh, changes to the squad this morning. Cole Palmer being one of three players to be called up to the squad, along with Rico Lewis and Esri Conter. all three having their first England call-ups. Uh, they're in place of Lewis Dunn, James Madison, and Kevin Wilson, who have all withdrawn. Uh, and, Connor, on this uh, running order, again, I had it written down, any players you want to see in action or given a chance against Malta on Friday, given that England are already uh, at Euro 2024, qualification already secured, I suppose it's those three players that we probably all want to see given a chance now, don't we? Cole Palmer, the form that he's in, has been superb. Esri Konza has been a rock at the back for Aston Villa. god knows how long and should have been in the England squad sooner than this. Uh, and Rico Lewis again, uh, a talented talented right-back. Uh, not that we've got any of those in England. and have not got too many right-backs at all. Um, are those three players, three players that you want to see given a chance against Malta? But more personally, do we expect actually Gareth Southgate to give them a chance against Malta? I think the second question, I'd probably suggest
0: not. I don't think he will give them a chance. If he wanted to give them a chance, he would have put them in his initial squad, would be my thought process there. And the fact that they're essentially injury cover call-ups, I, knowing Gareth Southgate and watching what he's done with the England squad in the past, I I wouldn't be shocked if all three of them players didn't actually get a cap. Um, I think he also likes the first call-ups. He seems to like to call them up, and just have them in and around this sort of camp in the squad to get used to it, which I don't think is necessarily a bad thing. Um, but I would like to see all three of them in there. Look, England are through the essentially pointless games. Um, they're games that they should win pretty comfortably. I remember actually me and you talking before North Macedonia last time, and I predicted an England win, and you were like, oh, you know, you can't count out North Macedonia. I think England would like six and less often, didn't they? And they read right at the. So I suspect both of them games, they'll be comfortable wins. I just think, you know, you, you want to have a bit of trial and error. You want to try different things. Rico Lewis is a player that, you know, can can we try him? Maybe not actually at right back. He plays scent relief on Man City quite a bit. Um, I think it'd be interesting to see him maybe try that in, a, in an England shirt. But I also think from Gareth Southgate's perspective, it's a chance to actually give players a little bit of rest. There's been a relentless schedule since probably before the, since probably Euro 2020, really, since that summer of 2021, the players have had no breaks. They've been playing pretty much every week since then. And I think it would be a good chance for him to maybe just give players a little bit of a rest. And I, and I would have liked to have seen his England squad be a bit more experimental in that sense, just so that he could give players a little bit of, you know, breathing space and time off. The only other thing to note really with this squad is the fact that Raheem Sterling. Even with the injury still hasn't had a call-up. I think that's really intriguing. It would suggest to me that he won't be in that England squad next summer. And it suggests as well that maybe Southgate's just finished with him as a player. I know he was asked today's press conference if there'd been a fallen out there. Um it just seems odd. He's been such an important part of that England squad for so long. And he even he was playing him last season in the England squad when England when he was really struggled at Chelsea. So when he found a little bit of form, it seems very strange for him to not even be in when there's been injuries. So I I think there's a a story there that we maybe don't know when it comes to Raheem Sterling in England, because I would have thought that he'd be in and around this England squad, especially with the
1: injuries that they've had leading into these games. And just finally as well, the the quirk of the England squad, yes, there are injuries to Luke Shaw and Ben Chilwell, uh, which explains their absences. But again, there is no left back in this squad, no natural left back in Gareth Southgate's squad. So it means that we're going to be subject to Levi Cole or Kieran Trippier uh, playing against uh, Malta and North Macedonia in that position. The fact that there's not any left backs in the squad when the first two are out injured, of course, look, it's unfortunate they're both out injured at the same time and ordinarily expect them to be in the team. But is that a concern going into the Euros next summer that there isn't that depth that, you know, right back, we could probably name an entire 11 of the English qualified players that could play in that position. But at left back on the other side of that flank, there isn't that depth, you know, you look at it and probably who's, who's the third one on the list behind, uh, I you know, Dan Burton, we play him center up again, obviously he's, uh, he's out injured at the minute, you know, um, you know, there isn't, that depth, I don't think, in that position. Tyrant Mitchell at Crystal Palace, potentially. But again, you know, that's that's third on the list. And would you have him really? Would you say that he's a good kind of call-up to those two? Is it is it is it a concern, a position of concern for you ahead of next summer? I think so. Uh, it reminds me a lot
0: actually of England sort of in the early 2000s where they, they didn't have a left midfielder. And I remember like Alan Thompson Celtic was a rumour to be getting called up. Um, it is a, a position of weakness for England, but I think they've got so many good quality players that you'd like to think that a call will can fill in at left back. If needs being, you can sort of um, work around that. I mean, a lot of teams also play with sort of that inverted fullback on one side. So, you know, if you're playing, let's just say Trent Alexander Arnold, because I think he'd be the best at it, at right back, he can tuck into that central area. Then he can go to a back three and the left back tucks in. I could, I could maybe see him tactically doing that, but I think, There's also other positions in the team. Striker, you know, Harry Kane gets injured. England have, I would suspect, in terms of minutes for centre-forwards over the last eight years, Harry Kane's probably had 95% of them. England don't know what it's like to play with a different striker, and I think that is something that could hurt them. You know, if Harry Kane pulls up injured by Munich in May and does his hamstring, he's out for three months, and he isn't at the tournament. England have got no idea how to play with any other striker, and I think it's almost naive in a lot of ways when we've had opportunities in games like this and friendlies, you know, the Scotland game in particular, to not have tried playing with, give Ollie Watkins minutes, just so we can see how he fits into the team. And maybe we need to play a little bit differently with him there. Because the last thing you want to do going into that tournament is have a a left back who is not a left back or is a centre back and has never played there and you haven't to shoehorn him in. But also if you've got an injury in that striker position, then England, I think, would go into that tournament maybe not screwed, but pretty close to screwed because they've never, ever tried to play anyone else in that position. And it's silly considering we qualify for tournament so easily and we've had friendlies that he just persists with playing Harry Kane when we know what Harry Kane can do. He's an amazing footballer. We know how to play with him. We don't know how to play with Ollie Watkins or Callum Wilson, I know he's injured for this game, but or Callum Wilson though, you know, and, and that for me is an area of concern heading this tournament that we just haven't sort of used a bit of trial and error with the squad and see what we've got elsewhere. We've
1: just kind of stuck with the tried and trusted players um, throughout all the games. Tried and tested, of course, including Jordan Henderson, still again in the England squad, despite playing in a, a competition that perhaps isn't the most challenging or competitive as the, as the Premier League is as well. Of course, Calvin Phillips still in that squad this month, getting many minutes for Manchester City. But that is probably a story for a whole nother podcast. Of course, Connor, thank you as ever for joining us this morning. Really appreciate your time. As always, of course, you can keep up to date with all the latest from the Premier League and the international windows across the Daily Star, Daily Mirror and Daily Express websites. But for now, it's goodbye.